Uh, happy 4th of July weekend. Good morning. I'm thankful for the opportunity to spend a few moments with you looking at God's Word. Um, I'm going to share a short story, and if I do my job right, I'll tie it together here uh, later in the sermon. This passage today reminded me of my trash this week. I have a, I have a street I live on, and the lady that lives behind me, uh, she's a retired, sweet, dear ex-teacher of music, and she's been teaching my kids all sorts of musical instruments, and so she eventually noticed by smelling that a possum died in one of her huge flower beds she has in her backyard. And so she asked that I would dispose of said possum. It was already a week plus old, dead. And so I grabbed my shovel that I hardly ever use and I carried it over and I scooped up the possum and I put it in the, the black trash sack she had. I tied it, I spun it, and I carried it back to my trash and I threw it in my trash. This is day zero of my trash. My trash can is usually clean. I spray it out once in a while, um, and it's, it's an immaculate trash can. Um, and so I threw the dead possum in the very bottom of my trash and went about my day. Week plus old dead possum. Day one, you know some flies. My kids said when they threw some, some trash in on top of the possum heap. Uh, week, day two, we added some more trash. Day three, you could smell you know, a little whiff of dead carcasses floating around the house on either side. Day four, day five, you can smell a strong whiff of carcass rotting. Uh, day seven, I drug that can out to the curb, and I was concerned the trash man would not take it. I didn't take a photo, because I thought that's cruel. I'm going to explain and describe what it was until I see concerned faces, and I'll stop. But the dead possum remains have produced fluid, black fluid, which made its way out of that sack into the bottom, where there's this pool of hair and fluid and maggots and flies, I'd say a couple hundred maggots, and a couple hundred flies. It was insane. It was disgusting, gross, revolting. It was like, take a breath and throw something else in and close the lid. It was rough. And so I, I was texting Annie. I'm like, Annie, is everything okay with our trash? Did he take it? You know, and Annie said, he looked concerned, but he took the trash. <laughs> so I'm going to pause there. We're going to pray. But that, that reminds me of my passage I'm signed this morning. I'll come back to it, but let's pray. God, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you that you are writing stories in our lives, and the greatest and grandest story you're, you're sharing is your story of redemption of all of mankind. I thank you for this word of God we get, uh, we get a hold in our hands. I thank you for the, the main theme of this story is Jesus. The main author's intent is God's rescue plan for salvation of men and women on this planet. I just thank you for the great story you're writing in our lives. I pray we'd all come nearer to you. Pray you instruct us with, with the Word of God, encourage us with the Word of God, uh, humble us with the Word of God, help us to submit to the Word of God, help us to yield to the Word of God, help us to be encouraged, refresh, and some of us need a kick in the butt, others need a hug from the Word of God. I pray that your Word with your Spirit would do your work in the grand story of these men and women's lives you're writing. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're kicking off a new series. Uh, at Sower Church, we value the Bible, and so a quick little shout out to your Bible. Uh, your Bible consists of 66 books in your Bible, and they're written over 40 different authors of men of various diverse backgrounds, uh, prophets, priests, tax collectors, IRS agents, fishermen, shepherds, doctors, kings, military leaders, musicians, politicians, over 1,500 years, several different continents, multiple different countries wrote the Word of God. And there's unity across this book from cover to cover. There's an amazing unity. There's no contradictions. There's no errors. Archaeology is discovering the cities the Bible mentions, the temples of people and kings the Bible mentions. 
the Bible has multi, 40 different authors over 1,500 years. They have different perspectives and seasons of life. They wrote it, but they all proclaim the same message of the same God. And in your Bible, you'll see different genres, different, different styles of writing. Some is narrative literature, which we've done as a church. Wisdom literature, which is like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, which we've done as a church. Prophecy literature, we've done some of that. Gospel literature, which we have a heavy dose of each fall. Epistles, apocalyptic, and poetry. There's multiple different genres. And I, I saw this the other month, and I love this. There's a photo. Um, it, it's done by a Bible scholar. Each of those white lines at the bottom of the graph there is like a chapter in your Bible. And there's cross-references from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Testament to different parts of the Old Testament. It's just crazy how this entire intricate web of Scripture, from the first page to the last page, is intricately woven together and masterfully written across the lives of 40 different men for 1,500 years. It's an amazing work. It's an amazing ancient book we're reading from today. And in that amazing ancient book, we're looking at one of the ch books, one chapter of one of the books. Uh, my title for this message is God Lovingly Redeeming Me. And it's in Psalms 24 is what we're looking at today. But the whole book of Psalms is about in the middle of your Bible. There's 150 some Psalms, different chapters in that book. Half of them are written by David. Today's Psalm 24 is also written by David. 12 of them are written by Aesop, 10 by the sons of Korah, which is the Levitical priest professionals who wrote psalms and poems, two by Solomon, one by Moses, and 50 some are unanimous. So why does the book of Psalms exist? Well, if you're paying attention to our intro video Chloe had for us, the book of Psalms exists so that it's a way to model the examples of how to process the emotions of life. All the ups and downs, twists and turns, highs and lows you have and you will experience in this life as a follower of Christ, you're going to feel a lot of feelings, people. And those feelings may or may not be right and biblical, people. But the Bible, model, the Bible models for us in the book of Psalms how to process this human emotions of this human experience. There are things you can sing about that you can't say. We know that's true in, in modern music. There's things you can write in a poetic way to make you really get into the head of the person. And all those experiences of life, if you had a great day or the worst day of your life, you lost your job this last week or you got a job, if you had a baby or lost a baby, depends on what happened in your experience this week, a healthy model is laid out for you in the book of Psalms. And Psalms 24 is what we're looking at. It is one of the most majestic, stately hymns in the whole book of Psalms. And we see several abrupt changes in subject matter. And that's not just me. I am abrupt and I change frequently if you've spent time with me. But that there, there's scholars think this could have been three small separate poems that were combined to one song, hymn, poem, three independent works that are made one unified work. But we see this pattern throughout Psalms 24. It's 10 verses. The first two verses look at God, the creator. Verses three through six look at a holy God. And verses seven through 10 look at a glorious God. If you're following along in the house Bibles, it's page 261. Psalm 24 focuses on God lovingly redeeming I'm supposed to be a history teacher. So the history of this psalm has a big history. Uh, when David was bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant back to the city of Jerusalem, that whole ordeal, Psalm 24, could have been involved in that ordeal or parts of it. And the dedication of the temple that Solomon made in his lifetime, when the doors were hung, it could have been sang. This psalm could have been sang during that time. And written with David had that dedication of the temple day in mind when he wrote this psalm. 
the Tabernacle of Feast, the annual New Year's festival, those two Jewish holidays, this song had a big moment in those, those holidays. And then I found this really interesting. It was commonly sung each Monday morning in Jewish temples. This psalm had a key part in the history of the Jewish people. And some think this psalm had poetic, I mean, prophetic renderings from here and with David writing it, talking about a Jesus someday returning to his heaven to a completed finished work. And I agree. I can see that connection. So I've prayed. I've given you some background. Let's look at it. Amen? Psalm 24, verse 1. The focus is God the creator. It says this. Though the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This is a foundational passage, a foundational bedrock of a biblical worldview is being laid out in these first two verses. Verse 1 and 2, God owns it all because God made it all. The earth is the Lord's. Let's think about that for a second. The earth is the Lord's. Why does this matter? Well, if you're from one paradigm, that's a bold claim. That's inconsiderate. That's arrogant. How can you say the earth is the Lord? Who gave God and Christianity creative rights to the entire earth? This is why evolution worldview and a creationist worldview deeply matters. So if one worldview is like we're all evolved from millions and millions of years, now I succeed that microevolution is a thing. Macroevolution is not a thing. Uh, we don't see anything in the fossil record of people transferring from scum to people. There's not like half-grown dolphin people walking around. You know, there's, there's either dolphins or there's people. There's either, do you get what I'm saying? There's not a fossil record of half-formed creatures. Uh, there's a large debate, and there's tons of research on the creation side to, to dismantle evolution. If you like more information on that, I'd love to give it to you. There's tons of books and resources. I'm sure we'll buy some in the future and give it out to all you parents. There's some great tools we're using in our own house. But the earth is the Lord's. If you make something, you own something. In our current copyright law, if I create something, I have to still work at the copyright office and pay fees and do all that legal stuff to make something copyrighted. But regardless of our American institution of copyright stuff, if God made this planet and the earth, he owns it. And he has ownership of it all. It's kind of like your shirt might say made in China or your fireworks might say made in America or made in Thailand or made somewhere. If you are a doctor or you're a scientist looking at creation or our DNA, you should see made by God. You should see the creative fingerprints and signature and the copyright of God, his stamp on all the creation. I've spent a couple years looking into this. It is amazing the complexity and the incredulity of how God created everything. The voice I'm using right now. How God made this organ to communicate to your intricately designed ears. It's an amazing system God's created. And that's just what's happening right now. And I'm talking about your eyes, which is wild. And we talk about everything on this planet. The earth is the Lord's. David, the psalmist, writing on behalf of God, he writes, the earth is the Lord's. If you think back to Genesis, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created something. He created everything the heavens and the earth. He created it. He owns it. It's kind of like that, that movie, Toy Story, the bottom of their foot. He writes, Andy, my kids do that with their toys. Enox, Knox, Rock, Maya. It's like, come on, share your toys. The earth is the Lord's. The toys are your kids. He owns it. He created it. It's his. The signature on your soul, on your DNA, on your fabric, every breath of your life is God owned and created the world 
And God owns and creates you. And that's a big shift we just made. God owns and creates animals and plants and the, those pretty sunsets. Sure, but God doesn't own me. He doesn't create me. He doesn't have authority and ownership over me. That's a, that's a very big thing we're working through in the verse first of this psalm. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Those who dwell therein is a nice poetic way to say us. We dwell in what God created. We are part of God's creation. We're maybe we're the chief pinnacle of God's creation, but we are part of that created order. God made us. He intricately wooed us, to, wooed us together in our mother's womb. He was there when life began in our existence. Those who dwell therein, God can name claim to you and to me because he made you and me. The earth is the Lord's and you are the Lord. There's a New Testament equivalent to this passage. If you follow the little arch from Psalm 24 to the New Testament, Paul wrote this same concept about God laying claim to you and to I. And in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20, Paul wrote, this is a very anti-Christian pagan culture this church is planted in, and it's a very weak, unhealthy church at this time. So this is not a healthy, robust church and a very anti-Christian, anti-Christianity culture. 1 Corinthians 6, 18, I started a couple of verses earlier because it helps give some context. It says, flee sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. We are not our own. The earth is the world's and all that dwell in it, he owns. We're not our own. We're double owned by God because the Holy Spirit's in us and he's purchased us with the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwelling in us. So let's break this down. Men, women, men, you're not your own. You belong to God. And your body's not your own. It's a servant of God. And your body belongs to God and also belongs to your wife or your future wife someday, men. And honor and worship and glorify God in how you live sexually is what Paul writes about. Your body belongs to the Lord, men. Women, you can't say it's my future, it's my decision, it's my body, I can do what I want with it. The Bible says you belong to the Lord. Like Mike, you're really out of touch with the times. Well, we are looking at a timeless work of God. Like That's lame. Like, this is a timeless work of God. And there's parts of this Bible that were not controversial a couple years ago, and now they're controversial. Do you realize that? This is an eternal book written to eternal beings, and it's not going to be popular to the here and now today. Think about it. In the beginning, God created everything. Male and female, he made them. That wasn't earth-shaking news a couple years ago. But nowadays, our culture is redefining things. But the Bible doesn't give us that permission. The Bible's very clear. We belong to the Lord. And because we belong to the Lord, we serve him, we glorify him, we worship him. He says, Honor me with your sexuality. Honor me and glorify me. Men, honor the Lord. Women, honor the Lord. Men, if there's, there's multiple men's purity groups that exist to help men walk through what it looks like. And they cover things like accountability, prayer, uh, scripture that speaks to pursuing holiness, and four main things. I forgot one of them. You should go to the classes. They're confidential. They're usually closed. But they're open right now for a season. They're adding men. And these are excellent for men's recovery groups. Um, they're typically closed, but right now I think they're open. They will not be open much longer. Women, if you struggle with this, tell your community group leader. We go about 
you know, identifying and assimilating women groups quite different than we do the men, for a variety of very obvious reasons. The earth is the Lord, and all that is in it, the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell therein. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The emphasis of these first two verses is God's sovereign hand over all the creation and all the created beings and all people. So it's a short catechism you can tell your kids. What is God's? Everything, everywhere, for all time is God's. Psalm 24, 1-2, God is the creator. And David continues, because God's the creator who created everything, he looks at God and he looks at himself. He looks at himself and humanity. And you see a holiness of God. And this is key to catch. 1 and 2, the biblical worldview of creation and who owns it all, goes to some very natural questions you would be thinking if you spent time dwelling and sitting in the question of what is God's? What did he create? Who is it that created this being? He goes to verse 3, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? The hill of the Lord is that, that real estate, that hill that David bought, that the temple is built upon. Who shall stand in his holy place? At this time in the Jewish temple, they had priests. There were Levitical order priests who are like career professional religious people that were developed their entire life work of memorizing the first five books of the Bible, of practicing the law meticulously. And they would go in once a year. There's random lots were cast about a priest who would go into the temple, the most holy of holy places, a place where they're set apart from all of the temple. Like people could come into, if you couldn't come into part of the temple unless you were Jewish, you couldn't come and pass a different part of the temple unless you're a man. You couldn't come deeper into the temple unless you're ceremonial clean. You couldn't go deeper into the temple unless you're professional, you know, professional Jewish priest. And there's this holy of holy place deep in the temple that no one could go into except for one time a year when they would offer sacrifices, light some incense, burn some candles, and they would have these robes on. And they have these little bells on the bottom of the robes. And you'd hear a little jingle of that man going into the temple. And they'd have a rope tied around his waist. In case he died, they would drag his carcass back out. If God struck him dead because he was unworthy to come into God's presence, they would drag his body out. A possum smells, I'm sure a rotting carcass in the Holy of Holies would be problematic. So who can go into that space? This unclean, unworthy people can't be in the presence of a worthy and clean God. These verses 3 through 6, the question and answer you'll see here, that's probably chanted by the priest and the, or the Levites, who shall ascend, we, who shall stand? There's, there's liturgical rhythms here in this psalm that we can see. But verse 3 is a question. Who gets to be in God's presence? Who gets to be in the presence of God? Who gets to be with God? Now there's like weight to the presence of God. There's a holiness. There's a reverence that most of American culture, I would say, does not get. We don't put weight, reverence, or holiness or worth to think about being in God's presence. But I do think we do get some things. We get the idea, the concept of power, prestige, and fame. So let's camp out on fame for a minute. Who gets to be in the presence of a famous celebrity, a famous person? Looking at fame and celebrity, I have Tom Brady's phone number. Now it's Tommy Brady, it's not Thomas Edward Patrick Brady II, it's Tommy Brady, a minister here in Lincoln, who does ministry. He changed, he calls himself Tommy, to be very clear, that not to be confused, but if, what would we have to do to get Tom Brady, Thomas Edward Patrick Brady II's phone number? How much money would you have to give? How long would you have to stand in line? How many years would you have to work at the Tampa Bay Edward James Stadium to be able to have a chance to shake his hand as he walks by? 
to be able to see where he parks his car. He parks his car in the stadium. The owner and him go to park the car in the stadium. We did a tour of it on our vacation a couple months ago. But you could, what do you have to do to get Tom Brady's phone number? To send you know, memes about hydration and pliability and whatnot, to be in a texting relationship with Tom Brady. What would you do to, to have a friendship with Tom Brady? What would you do to be in the presence of a celebrity, of a famous person? David, the psalmist, is asking us a question that's kind of posed the same way. One, verse one and two covers, is God real? Is God real? If he's real, he created everything, everything for all time. And if he is real, how, verses three through six, how do we get to be in the presence of God? I've had friends who've told me they heard I'm a pastor and they heard what I do. And they're like, I can't go to your church. If I do, it'll burst into flames. And they have come. Both of those different friends have come and the church is still here right now. That's not burst into flames. David continues on in verse four. Who can be in God's presence? Verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands mean your outward action. And a pure heart means your inward motivation. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully. So who, who qualifies? Who can be in the presence of God? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who can come before the Lord and be in the presence of God? The answer is no one. We all have the same problem. We all are unworthy to be with God in the presence of God. We are completely and totally disqualified. Who can be in God's presence? The answer is easy. Sinless people. No sinless people in this room. There's no sinless people in this city. If you spent any time with us the last 10 weeks, those 10 commandments, we work through them one by one. And you might have walked in on a Sunday morning thinking, I'm good on this week. And as the sermon ended, you're like, no, nope, nah, that one too, that one too. Oh, I didn't murder anyone this week. Dang it. You know, and you went through the entire thing and you're like, wow, those Ten Commandments is a real brutal photo of me and myself and my sinfulness and my unclean hands and unpure motivations as a person. Who can be in God's presence? Verse 4 explains, we can't. We do not qualify. And then David continues on in verse 5. Now it's a it's a psalm. It's not it's not. It's not, it's a poem, it's a song, so it moves differently in literature. So he jumps to verse five. We will receive blessing from the Lord. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. It's like, what? So what's happening here? Verse five, Jesus is happening there. The Messiah is happening there. Every author in the New Testament was looking forward to a future Messiah that would come and redeem and save and could be in God's presence on our behalf. And every author after the cross was looking back to Jesus about how we could be saved and be in God's presence and have right standing with God. The one sinless Savior is able to be in God's presence, and that's Jesus the Messiah. Habakkuk 2.4 and Romans 1.6.17 both quote, the righteous will live by faith. Our righteousness is based off of God's righteousness, not our own righteousness. Our righteous standing is made by Jesus' life, not my life. But that in less churchy speak, more normalized language, you get to go to heaven because of your relationship with Jesus, not your resume. Jesus' resume gets you right standing with God, not your resume. Jesus' effort gets you right standing with God, not your effort. There's none of us that can make a nice enough resume to impress God, and none of us that can, that can have enough effort to get God's attention. Your personal effort does not matter. Verses 3 through 6, this, this portion is the prerequisite for worship. And David's thoughts naturally rise from this world to our condition in this world, 
So who could come and stand in God's presence on our behalf? There's a recognition of the creation to the creator of this world to where we are now as unworthy sinners who need a worthy Christ to come and redeem us. And then we get to verse 6. And verse 6 is the main hope you can hang your hat on this morning. There's this Verse 6 probably was sung as a chorus by the congregation so they can really grasp verse 6. Let's read it together. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God, of Jacob. So the idea is this individual, this sinless one, would go into the presence of God and make a way for us to join God and have right standing with God. This is the only action on this whole psalm, which is seek him. It's not seek David, the author of this passage. It's not seek your local priest. It's seek him, the only one who could be sinless and righteous that verse 5 and 6 talk about. Seek him, Christian. The Old Testament equivalent of seeking him was burning your idols and obeying God and worshiping God. Who gets to be in God's presence? Those who seek him. How do you seek God? You seek God the way he called his people to seek him. How do I get to be close to God? The answer in Psalm 24 is you get to be close to God, closer to God than you think you can, the way and how you seek him. Seek him, Christian. When you're young and dumb like I was, seek him. When you never get tired and your joints never hurt, seek him. When you get older and you get hurt getting out of bed in the morning and your, your elbow hurts and your eyes get wrinkled in them and you start to get white hair in your head, seek him, Christian. The worst days of your life, seek God. The best days of your life, seek Him. As you grow old and your friends start to scatter and disappear and your kids don't see you as much as they used to and you don't have as many teeth as you used to, seek Him. When your thoughts are about the past because that's what you have, seek Him, Christian. Who gets to be close to Him? Those who seek Him. Verses 7 through 10. The results of all that's been written about God, our creator, and God is holy. 7 through 10, they, they turn our attention. The author bursts forth in worship about the glorious God we seek. It's likely a call and response, very liturgical. It's designed to have the high priest or a crowd of Levites leading a chant to singing the song the first day of the week. And there's repetitions of psalms and songs are usual and normal. And our songs have repetitions as well. So let's look at this song. Verses six, seven, verse seven. Lift up your heads, O gates. That's a seek him reference. And be lifted up, O ancient doors. That's a revelation reference. That the king of glory may come in. We're looking to Jesus, the Messiah. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The biggest battle, the biggest problem we have is sin and death. Who's able to defeat that? The king of glory is. Lift up your head, heads, O gates. It's a seek him emphasis. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. It's a revelation reference. Who is the king of glory? It's a Messiah Jesus reference. The Lord of hosts. It's a term for the Lord's, the Lord heaven's army. He is the king of glory. And Salah, which is a heavy moment to pause and reflect when the music is playing. So a little history highlight. David probably wrote this psalm when the doors were being hung up to be read, when the doors were being hung on the, the temple. And this psalm was re-sang the first day of the, the temple, that grand day when the temple was opened up and completed. 
And it's fitting that the psalm be written for the future dedication of the temple when David was dying. And might have very well been sang in heaven when Jesus was welcomed home. You know, I had a little fun and wrote a little story about what heaven will not be for you. It's just remarkable that God is welcoming us as creative people into his presence in a deep and meaningful relationship is what we talk about. A deep and meaningful relationship. Now I'm going to contrast our experience with celebrity and leadership and fame as powerful people with what it will not be like in heaven. You're not going to be dying and going to heaven and get a glimpse of Jesus on July 3rd to New Orientation Sunday. Welcome, class of January 3rd, 2022. Welcome, you new inductees to heaven. Pack into this huge room. And then comes in different people explaining where you're going to get stuff at heaven, what you need to do at heaven, what your work is at heaven, how things operate at heaven. And then and quickly, Jesus walks in, gives a quick little hello, hi, 90-second thing, and then the angel secret service leads him out. You walk around heaven for a while, and you're like, this is awesome. But i not hanging out with Jesus that much. I'm going to go hang out with Jesus. So you go to the office of Jesus, and you request a meeting of Jesus. And they say, well, yeah, easy. We have 15 minutes on July 14th, and, you know, 1,600 years from now, give or take. And like, is there a waiting list? That is the waiting list. You're like, okay, great. I will, uh, I'll uh, wait. You go to a dinner party for some of your friends in heaven and your friends in heaven say, you know, I heard a guy who knows a guy who can get you in quicker. I'll ask if I can help you out. And you're like, okay, great. And then nothing happens of that. Finally, years go by and you're patient to wait. I mean, it's a great gig. You're enjoying the place. Uh, finally, you get to go to your meeting and you're there early and you're ready. You have some photos, you have your Bible, let's say, a Bible or something, and you have some questions and whatnot. He comes late. Jesus comes late. He's distracted by his iPhone. There's notifications and stuff. He came in on his phone, and yes, there's iPhones in heaven. And, and anyways, you and him are talking. You have a few rushed combo. He's distracted. And then you're like, he's got to go because someone more important is calling. And you're like, yeah, that's cool. I'm just glad to be here. And then you're, you're like, hey, hey, Jesus, Jesus, can I get a selfie? He's like, yeah, you bet. And you smile. Great selfie. You loved it. Your finger is in it. It's fine. You're happy. You tweet it out on your heavenly Instagram, social media. And he's like, remember, hashtag Jesus. And you're like, awesome. Love it. Great. I'm happy to be here. And then he's gone. He's gone. And you see him glimpses here and there every couple hundred years, but he's gone. That is not the Bible's version of the relationship we can have with Jesus. That's what you'll experience with a world leader today, a famous person today. A glimpse in a moment of their time, and it's forced, manipulated, rehearsed, spontaneity conversation. That is not what you see in heaven. This isn't the kind of savior we write about and we read about in the Bible. We see a, a savior, leader, king of glory, Lord of hosts, you see in your Bible. And I've read my Bible a dozen sometimes, and I'm no expert, but I'm trying to learn more about this Bible. But you see a radically intimate, genuinely authentic, time-wasting on sinners, Jesus who goes broke just to be in a deep, close, personal relationship with you. Jesus wants to be your best friend. That's the king of glory we read about. He desires to be in a close relationship with sinners, and only sinners qualify. But he wants to be your best friend. You don't deserve that kind of friend. You don't. I don't deserve that friend. But that's the friend we get. That's the authentic, genuine Jesus we get, who will meet you in heaven, he'll hug you, he'll walk you to your mansion, he'll sit down and set up shop. You get what I'm saying? He's your roommate. He's bugging you all the time. That's the kind of Jesus we have. That's the Jesus we sing songs to, we read about a deeply intimate, personal relationship with God, who wants to be with us, the created people who goes broke to be with us. This psalmist points to Christ, to the mercy seat of Christ, 
about Jesus' triumphal entry into the eternal city of eternal doors are thrown open and where Christ in all of his glory is able to reign and rule and we get to be with him. This Jesus found the shut doors we sinners could not get through and he busted them open because of his work on the cross, atoning mankind for our sins and there are many. Your sins, my sins, became his problem and he fixed it. Your most embarrassing, evil, shameful, horrifying things you have done or you will do were redeemed on the cross of Christ. Christ, our Redeemer, has the authority to open closed doors for us and atone for the biggest problem we had, our sins, for all of mankind. Your sins and my sins. We were allowed to have access to God, a deep relationship with God, because he removed your sins and my sins. Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God. They could walk in the cool of the night and the evenings with God daily, talking and walking with God. That was paradise. You get fruit, you get nice weather, and you get God. That's, that's the Garden of, Eve, Garden of Eden. Heaven, you get God's presence to make it paradise. We get God's presence to make everything perfect. And the best part about paradise is God's presence. And how are we able to enter into paradise if we're imperfect? How can we have a perfect relationship with God if we're imperfect people? How can we have a relationship with the perfect creator when we're the faulty people, the created beings that are broken? We can't. The creator welcomes us people. The creator welcomes us people. And we people need to welcome the creator. So as I close, talking about Jesus and doors, Psalm 24, there's this famous passage in the New Testament quoting Jesus. Jesus is saying these things in Revelations 3.20. It says, See, I stand at the door and knock, and knock, and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is coming for you. He's seeking you first. That's how you're allowed to seek him second. This door opening trailblazing, chain-breaking Savior we sing about, we read about, we worship. He broke your chains. Whose trail did he blaze? He blazed your trail. Whose sins did he conquer? He conquered your sins. He seeked you. You seek him, Christian. All the doors and gates of your heart need to be open to Christ. Not a one-time-a-week thing, not a one-time-a-month thing, not a Christmas and Easter kind of thing, but I'm seeking Christ because it's the only hope I have. He's the owner of your heart. He owns you. He made you, church. Seek him. You desperately need Jesus to come into every prayer of your life here and now and set up permanent residence. Seek him, Christian. Remember, our lives without Christ are like that trash can of a dead possum. My son was heard me talking about it. And I think he was worried on my behalf. And he took the Lysol from our house and he went over there and he sprayed Lysol on top of the week, two-week-old possum carcass trash that was cooking all week in the hot Nebraska humid heat. I came back later that evening and I was like, I didn't smell the Lysol. You get what I'm saying? Our effort to impress God with our resume and our effort. We're a workspace Midwest city. We want to earn God's approval. It's like spraying Lysol on the dead carcass of our works, people. We cannot impress God if our works seek him. 
Worship him the way he said. Cast your idols aside and seek him. Worship him. Don't worship things. Seek him, church. I love what Matthew Henry wrote about this passage, Psalm 24. He said, this Psalm 24, this is the gospel call and demand that we let Jesus Christ, the King of glory, come into our souls and welcome him with hosannas and blessed be he that cometh. Jesus does not come. No one else is coming. Seek him, church. You can be closer to God than you think. Seek him. Let's pray. Will you bow your heads? Lord, I thank you for, uh, if we realize it or not, we're unworthy to be close to you, God. I pray that we would realize it today. And because of Christ's work on the cross, because of Christ seeking us first, we can have a relationship with you. Lord, I thank you for, I pray that you just convict and instruct hearts, Lord, that we would believe that, yes, the gospel is for me. You can forgive us, Lord. I pray we just move our hearts to believe that we can be closer to you, Lord. I pray for our hands, Lord. I pray we would use our hands to throw our idols away on the power that you give us in the gospel and the word of God. Step in an authentic Christian community and follow you, Lord. Thank you for seeking each of us individually. I pray we'd spend a lifetime seeking you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.